Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome back, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. So I was working on creating an outline for this week's episode when I received a text from a peer about some training we're all required to do at work. And this was not the first text I'd received expressing frustration with the training. And I had to stop what I was working on and really think about this training, this training that was being asked of us. And I was thinking about how I support proactive intervention to help curb unacceptable behavior and organization, as do all the peers who've reached out to me. Never was the complaint that it wasn't important, but more, the complaints reflected the execution of the training, how it was presented, how it was implemented, the problems with attempting to do the training, which was all online, unsupported, and then questions as to the efficacy of the training. Diversity training is aimed at interrupting and hopefully stopping problematic behaviors, which can sometimes lead to a hostile workplace and inequitable opportunities or lack of opportunities for certain groups. It's meant to create a more culturally competent environment to improve morale, help workers feel more committed to their jobs, help companies recruit and retain a more diverse workforce, and even increase productivity and creativity. But does it do all these things? And if not, why not? So then I thought about the episode I recently did on male allyship, just thinking about allyship in general and how at its core, it's about being an upstander versus a bystander. And of course, I advocate for processes and policies that have accountability. And I acknowledge that to be allies, to truly support action-oriented allyship, words and actions have to be aligned. Words without action and accountability are detrimental to changing culture. So why then the bristling on my part and others who are very much allies committed to equity and inclusion? And so I decided to address this in this episode because I know there are warriors listening who also want to be good allies, but likely struggle at times with quote unquote solutions that leave you pausing, that leave you questioning the what, the how, and the why of training in terms of efficacy. Is mandatory diversity, equity, and inclusion training effective? Does it do what it is intended to do? And if not, how do we make the necessary changes to create solutions that actually move the needle, that mitigate the mindset and behavior that is woven into the fabric of our organizational and institutional cultures so we can create lasting, meaningful, and measurable change? If we turn to the evidence-based research relative to training, we find that researchers have been examining these questions for decades. Do people who undergo training shed their biases and change their behavior? And do the changes last? Are the anticipated outcomes achieved? And also the question of should the training be voluntary or mandatory? Does mandatory training work, especially if and when there is little consideration of buy-in up front, the why part of what, how, and why? Part of the issue is that we have to stop thinking mandatory and accountability are synonymous. They are not. Thinking that by requiring the training, we are ensuring that everyone gets the information and is on board, and so we have fulfilled the accountability piece, is not accurate. And here's the inherent problem with that kind of thinking. We have to remember that the training isn't the goal. 
Too often, that part is forgotten. The goal should be the measurable changed behavior, not that you've done the training. So mandatory only scratches the surface of accountability. It's the start of the journey to accountability, but it's far from the destination of changed culture, more culturally competent cultures, more equitable cultures that are the real goal of these types of initiatives, or at least should be. And I talk about key performance indicators a lot, and I do this because it's natural law and human nature. The research on human behavior proves this again and again. We must reward the behavior we want to see. That which is measured gets done. But too often, what organizations do to quote-unquote fix the problem doesn't get it done. It doesn't fix the problem, in part because often half-baked strategies are implemented without enough pause. Pausing to see the inherent shortcomings, unintended consequences, and necessary underpinnings, the necessary shoring for training programs that are often weak or ineffective to make them stronger and more effective, to have them result in the outcomes they are intended to impact. Should getting the training done and the percentage of people that do the training be the measurement? Isn't that input versus output? What too often doesn't happen is that big picture thinking to ensure the training is as effective as possible. And this includes thinking about the before, during, and after of the training. Have we gotten buy-in on the training? Clearly established the why? Have we ensured people see the value and understand the contribution? Mandatory is hardly the same as buy-in. Have we ensured the process of the training is not a miserable one, filled with frustrations of online tech problems and being required to answer questions that aren't always phrased in ways that make sense and there's no one to turn to to clarify now with all this online training? Is there a process of closing the loop to ensure that participants leave with key takeaways and specific strategies to implement change to ensure the learning brings actionable change? That knowledge is not just achieved via the measurement of the quiz taken at the end, but that we have then assessed the efficacy of the training by evaluating the pragmatic changes that occur after and for the long term. Did we even have goals up front in terms of what would change after the training? Or was the goal just to get everyone to take the training? Have we addressed the gap that the literature shows can exist between what people value, for example, gender equity, and what they do? For example, promoting women and equal pay. See, believing in and wanting and supporting gender equity is not the same as behavior, action, and outcomes like more women promoted, more women in top-level leadership roles, more women receiving equal pay. Was there any kind of pre- and post-testing or assessment or even a discussion before Human Resources sent out a mass email on required training to show that the time asked of people to complete the training is getting a return on investment, that it's part of a bigger plan? Or is our time simply meant to be a feather in leadership's cap, something to check off their list of things they're supposed to be doing versus part of an organizational plan aimed at real, meaningful, and lasting change? Questioning these practices is crucial. Again, not because there isn't value in training and educating. Certainly there is. Of course there is. But it is important because like almost anything we do, if we don't do it well, too often it results in doing more harm than good. This is about creating true allyship, true believers in implementing change to create more equitable organizations and structures, not people who end up dreading and complaining and being resentful of the training. 
So an important part of creating real change is being willing to challenge policies and processes that do much more to make sure companies don't get sued, aren't as culpable than they do to create real, measurable, and lasting change. Too many diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are about checking the boxes so leaderships can say, we've done our part. And if there's still a problem, it's not on us. And most people don't want to do training or engage in activities that take up a lot of time, are not measured, and don't result in real change. Only so organizations can shift the blame then to people and away from organizations. You know, we told them they were trained, so now if there's problems or if they mess up, it's on them. Our hands are clean. And I'm sorry, you just can't punch as pilot your way out of accountability when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can't leave things worse off than before you started and then claim you've done your part. See, that's where a lot of the problems come in. Decades of research shows that policies, programs, and initiatives implemented without thoughtful strategy, without the before, during, and after considered, can create backlash and even displaced frustration where people start to feel like, hey, why do I have to take sexual harassment training or bias training or any of these trainings? A negative mindset can emerge where people become annoyed with women or persons of color or underrepresented or marginalized groups as though all the quote-unquote complaining is causing them to have to do a bunch of training. And unfortunately, that is what can happen when you dump a bunch of training on people with the total communication being it's mandatory. So for example, here's the language and the process of the required training I was talking about that my peers had been reaching out to me about, complaining about to a degree. So this company-wide administrative email went out and it said, quote, dear all, This is to let you know you have been scheduled to complete the required online training listed below. Please complete this training by, and it goes on to give you the date and the instructions on how to find the links and complete the online training. And it then says, quote, you will be receiving reminders to complete the training approximately every two weeks until training is completed. Please be advised that this training is required either by university policy or state or federal law. And then it gives you the uh, human resource contact information. And that's the entirety of the communication. Seemingly the entirety of the plan, if you're sitting there looking at the email. So then you look and it shows the four required trainings, which have the time needed for each training. The four trainings add up to 119 minutes. So basically two hours, right? But it's more than that because you have to keep taking the quiz at the end of each training session until you get a high enough score. And the questions are often difficult to detangle, to understand exactly what they mean or what they're asking. So this can end up taking twice as long. Literally, most people don't even understand the name of the training programs that they're being asked to take. The first training program in this example that I'm talking about that I received was titled Cleary Act Overview Full Course. I'm guessing most people who received the email requiring their time have never even heard of this. So right out of the gate, we're being asked to support something that we've never even heard of with our time. So I actually went and Googled Cleary Act before I started the training to see what it was and why the training was important. The result of the search was the Cleary Act is a consumer protection law that aims to provide transparency around campus crime policy and statistics. In order to comply with Cleary Act requirements, colleges and universities must understand what the law entails, where the responsibilities lie, and what they can do to actively foster campus safety. Okay, I'm all for campus safety. I can't help but think, though, that perhaps if the information, the why, was delivered in a human way, Might that not make people more interested in, less put off by the training? And there's a lot of research on this, and it's pretty clear 
that there can be adverse effects of mandatory training where there is a threat or consequence motivation versus a positive incentives. And I don't mean money. I'm talking about taking the time to really help people understand the importance, the value, help them to see the problem and understand the way to the solution and the positive outcomes of that solution. So they see how they are helping create something positive versus this training is required either by university policy or by federal or state law. That's not motivating anyone. Making people feel like they're the problem and if you can fix them, you can fix the problem, never motivated anyone. Start any training by telling a group of people that they're the problem and they'll get defensive. Once that happens, they're much less likely to want to be a part of the solution, to be a true ally. Instead, sometimes they'll even resist. And if they can't resist because it's mandatory, then they'll complain, phone it in, and it is unlikely to change their mindset and ultimately their behavior. And even worse, the research shows that often the problems that the training is meant to fix don't get better. They can even get worse. That's what actually happens with harassment training, for example. There's plentiful research that shows that it can actually make people more likely to blame the victims and to think that people who report harassment are making it up, overreacting, and complaining. No surprise, then, that in a 2018 Pew Research Center study, more than 30% of men said that false claims of sexual harassment are a major problem, and that 58% of women who had been harassed said that not being believed is a major problem. Also, analysis from thousands of studies shows that, as it turns out, people are easily taught how to respond correctly to a questionnaire at the end of a training session about their bias, but they soon forget those right answers in practice. And so research shows that any positive effects of diversity training rarely last beyond a day or two, but it can activate bias or backlash that is lasting. And we know this. The information has been there for decades. And still, the auto email with, you must do this in fulfillment of requirements in state law is what we get. And those of us who really believe in the importance of the change need to interrupt the feelings of guilt that we have when we just don't really want to do the training and consider why we're feeling that, why we're frustrated. Then put that blame where it belongs with policies around equity that don't move the needle, but do exonerate the organization from having any culpability. We have to call that out. And that's part of what I'm doing here. We must demand better. We can't live with checking the box solutions. And can we even really call them solutions? Instead, we need to expect and demand organizations do better. And to be clear, again, I'm not saying don't train people. Not at all. I believe in education and training. I often pull in one of my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou on this podcast, quote, do your best until you know better, then do better, end quote. And that's all about learning how to do better and being expected to do better. But providing solutions without doing the work of ensuring buy-in and action-oriented outcomes that are measurable is not okay. In fact, it can make things worse in that it can perpetuate this idea that we've done what we need to do to fix these problems when the data show after decades of this type of training, we have not. And so with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, we can't just be satisfied that organizations are doing something. I am encouraging critical questioning, challenging initiatives that aren't good enough. 
The purpose of this conversation is not to disparage attempts to reduce bias or harassment or discourage people from doing training, but rather to question whether what we are doing is working and if it can work without flanking the training with ongoing efforts to support it. I'll use the analogy of a cup of coffee. A cup of coffee is a good way to get a jolt of energy, but it's not the same long-term solution as developing strong sleep strategies. Too often, even when people enjoy the training and report it was valuable, it doesn't last. It doesn't manifest as meaningful change because alone, without the after part of the plan, it's like the cup of coffee. The effects fade. And behavioral specialists know this and communicate it all the time. Behavioral change is about consistency and reinforcing long-term. Imagine trying to get your kids to eat their vegetables by telling them once the importance of nutrition, the equivalent of a training session, really. And that's it. You don't reinforce the message or take any other action to ensure the message results in change. You don't ensure they have access to different types of vegetables. Would you expect that the one conversation going over the importance of vegetables, the mandatory nature of eating them would fix the problem? Of course you wouldn't. And often the training that's being offered isn't even that. It's not about attending an awesome interactive workshop. And even those don't work when there isn't follow-up. It's about closing the loop to ensure key takeaways are acknowledged and actionable steps are put into place to utilize the knowledge so that the knowledge manifests in changed behavior for the long haul. But what we too often get is companies sending out auto emails with legalese as the rationale for completing daunting training with no opportunity to ask questions, with no engagement, not even with the cookies and coffee we used to get in the in-person training. There's no action plan. There's no specificity of what we're supposed to take away. There's no buy-in. The takeaway can't be, we've told you now, so don't do that anymore. Unfortunately, research shows that just doesn't work. Harvard Business Review conducted a robust study analyzing mandatory diversity training in terms of grievance procedures, how the organization responds to grievances. The authors of the study note that every Fortune 500 company they analyzed had a grievance procedure, but they haven't improved the situation for women. The authors note, quote, after the companies in our study implemented them, in fact, the total number of women working in management declined. The authors go on to explain how many of these procedures were, quote, first cooked up by lawyers to intercept victims who were planning to sue and then were adapted to protect companies against suits by the accused, end quote. So we can't have DEI initiatives ultimately be about covering the organization's ass. It's got to be about real measurable change, measurable change in organizational culture and outcomes. Sensitivity and awareness are important, but only insofar as they create action. It's behavior changes that ultimately need to be assessed, outcomes, measurable organizational outcomes. So what can be done rather than just dumping a bunch of online training programs on people? Well, we need to consider big picture and small picture. Big picture, how has the organization infused change and prioritization of equity throughout the entire organizational pipeline beyond training? I'm talking about things like reworking or changing completely company policies, ineffective company policies, changing recruitment and promotional criteria. And leadership needs to embody any diversity and inclusion strategy. Writing down words on a piece of paper does not make a culture. Having leaders which embody and live it does. Creating real change, reducing harassment and inequity will require changing organizational culture so that fighting harassment, creating equity, becomes part of your mission, part of the core, infused in organizational priorities. 
Organizations must engage as many people as possible in the effort and create systems of accountability that get everyone involved in the oversight. What is happening in every department on every level with every interaction that is showing, proving that this is a priority, not just a gesture? What is the big picture plan that is leading to sustainable change? And how often are you checking the plan and adapting as needed to ensure the plan is working? There has been some evidence that everyday small actions resulting from leadership commitment can be impactful and can bring long-term results. I read this Forbes article recently by Phil Lewis titled, Why Malcolm Gladwell's Broken Windows Theory is Key for Building a Better Business. So in the book, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell details the broken windows theory, which is basically that small crimes, small antisocial behaviors can create an environment that encourages further crime, bigger crimes. The best way to reduce crime then is to deal with the visible signs first, however insignificant they may appear to be. So some studies support the effectiveness of this approach, while others claim to debunk it. But I like how it might relate to this conversation. So in addition to the big things, the big picture, can we call out the small things before they become bigger things? You know, the things that are perhaps on the line of bad behavior, but when left unchecked, perhaps lead to crossing the line later. And I talked about this a lot in the episode I did on male allyship about calling out those behaviors that can create inequity. And in the Forbes article, Lewis asks about this broken window theory, can this hold true in business? He asks, quote, if an organization, say, fails to run its meetings on time, does this foster an environment in which lax governance becomes the norm? Would a high average number of people in said meetings normalize a culture in which decision-making is slow or stagnant? On a more positive note, might improving, say, the warmth of welcome given by a receptionist to a visitor boost overall the levels of organizational happiness, end quote. I really like these questions. They suggest that we need to consider how our small, everyday actions can result in normalizing behavior, how our everyday interactions may be normalizing bad behaviors that can lead to inequity, but how allyship can help normalize more equitable behavior. From a leadership perspective, great that we're doing training, but then does that training extend to our everyday behaviors? And does our organization encourage calling out those behaviors or does it discourage it? And how do we measure this? Sometimes the easy measure of less bad behavior is the exact opposite of changing culture for the better. Perhaps more reports of dealing with bad behaviors, microaggressions, et cetera, is the true sign that we're doing better, that we're noticing, and that we're interrupting. Short term, it may look worse, but long term, it may result in those big picture changes that are truly the point of all of these DEI initiatives. Training alone isn't enough. We need big picture, company-wide initiatives and buy-in, but also day-to-day interventions and constant measuring and adapting until we actually get the changes we espouse to be working towards. I've talked about this before. Basic tenets of workplace civility, what is tolerated and what is not, can have a big impact on the culture. So my manifest statement this week is this. Real change isn't measured with words. It isn't measured with input. It's measured with output outcomes. Changing culture must be a holistic process infused in every part of organizational structures. It's not a cup of coffee, a bunch of training sessions. It's habits, habitual behaviors at the individual, team, and organizational level. We must identify the habits that are hindering equitable outcomes that need to change, then create initiatives that interrupt and create impact, measurable impact, 
measurable outcomes that prove that what we are doing is moving the needle and creating real cultural change. For all you warriors listening who want to continue to transcend barriers and thrive, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas on topics you'd like to hear me cover in more depth or new topics you'd like me to explore. So please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. That's D-R-D-E-S-I-M-O-N-E at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast. It's totally badass and I love it. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.